uh, verses 14 to 16 this morning, focusing especially on the last verse, on verse 16. This is God's word. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall abide forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you now and ask that you would work in us according to your promise, that you would send your Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds, teach us the truths that are found in this one passage, so that we might live according to it, that we might be strengthened in our faith to live boldly for your glory in the world in which you have put us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may have occasionally come across um, uh, some people who say, well, you know, I don't don't believe that the church ought to have creeds. I don't really believe that. I, I think that the only creed we ought to have is Christ. The only book we ought to have is the Bible. Um, It's as simple as that, and we ought not add anything to it. Well, one of the things that we find as we come to, especially the book of 1 Timothy, is that um, over and over, Paul shows us the the statements, the creedal statements that were adopted by the early church. Remember, the one that we often state is, uh, the statement is true, isn't it? That I, um, I am the chief of sinners. That's something that the church would have confessed as a whole. And here we find six precious lines that surely you can imagine a congregation huddled together in someone's home as they would always have been at that time, uh, standing together one, maybe a Christmas morning, and reciting these verses together. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And as you think about those simple lines, just those simple statements Imagine for the people who were reading this for the first time, what a cost there was with them. These six lines separated some folks from their families. These six lines would have separated some men from the jobs that they held For others, these six statements propelled them before governors and kings and to punishment by death, sometimes violent, severe death. These six lines. So why do we declare them? Well, we declare them because they are true. As the ground and the buttress of the truth, Christ's church exists to proclaim what is And Paul reminds us of something else in these words, like the veins and the arteries that that cause blood to flow through your body, uh, uh, through which your your heart pumps the blood to your bodies and, and causes you to live. These verses have a vital connection to our personal godliness. 
These six phrases, as it were, are the the vitality of your spiritual life. They are the circulatory system of your soul. In this chapter, he has explained much about what the expectations are for the officers of Christ's church. What kind of men are they to be? In this chapter, he explains much about, and here he explains the expectations of the entire household of God. The members of God's household must conduct themselves in a godly way. This is what Paul said in verse 15, if I delay, you you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Here we learn the vital link between godliness and the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. But first, I think we ought to take just a moment to say, uh, what exactly is godliness? And we could break the word down and say, well, I think godliness is... It's godly, or some places it's translated piety. Maybe that's an older word for us. But, but godliness, we might say, well, that's, that's the attribute of living maybe like God would live. Or maybe it's sort of like looking at the way Jesus lived his life, and I ought to live my life in that way. As we think about godliness, we think about the conduct of our lives. But there's a little bit more to it. We might define it this way. It is a reverence for God that leads to circumspect living. What do we mean by that? Well, it's an inner attitude of the heart. Godliness begins in a man's heart. This is why these verses are so important to us and a a, a healthy circulatory system is important to the soul because godliness begins in the heart. It is an attitude of the heart. A reverence for God. It's usually used, this idea of godliness is usually used in conjunction with other, added, other aspects of life. It's used with reference to a peaceful and a quiet life. If you go back to chapter 2 and verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, why do we pray for them? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Thinking about the people reading these verses What are they asking for? That they might live a godly life without persecution. For simply naming the name of Christ. We learn also from this letter that godliness requires training. It isn't something that comes naturally to us. Look at 1 Timothy 4.7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, or instead, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So you and I ought to be training ourselves for godliness. The more you understand, the more you grow in your knowledge of God's word and of his ways, the more you will be equipped to live in a godly way. Godliness is equated with life. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, with steadfastness. In 2 Peter 1, 6, with brotherly affection. In 2 Peter 1, 7, and with holiness. In 2 Peter 3, 11. Godliness, you see, is an attitude of the heart that reverences God 
and leads to a conduct of life that is pleasing to him. It's interesting then, as we go back to chapter 3, verse 16, that the confession begins this way, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Why does Paul say that godliness is a mystery? Well, I want to come back to that at the end. Before we get to the mystery of godliness, let's go in and consider briefly each of these six statements that we have about the Lord Jesus. But first, just a a general statement about each one of them. Notice a couple of things here. There are six statements that were made by the early church referencing the Lord Jesus Christ. As we read through them, did you notice what aspects of Christ's life they touch on? Did you notice? Let's look at them again together. He was manifested in the flesh. What does that refer to? Well, the very beginning of his life. But also we might think of every phase of his life. There was a moment where he had an infant flesh, and then he grew into a teenager, and finally into an adult. He was vindicated by the Spirit. This is referencing his ministry of life on the earth. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So in these six simple statements, the church of Jesus Christ declared the entire life of Christ from beginning even to its time right now. From his humiliation to his exaltation, from his incarnation to his ascension, we learn that the whole life of Christ, the whole life of Christ, every moment of it, even now, is vital to Christian truth because all he did was for our redemption so that no fact may be left out. Well, Paul has said to us that he's revealing some secrets to us, some mysteries of godliness, as it were. So we're going to look at six super secrets. This is a great mystery, Paul says in verse 16. Great is this mystery. Let's look at the first super secret. He was manifested in the flesh. Now, this is a passive verb. He appeared. He was made visible. He was revealed or was made to be seen. He was brought to light, as it were. So this is the first vital truth to Christian piety. The incarnation was a manifestation of God Himself. This can only mean one thing. He didn't begin to exist here, did He? That's not what the text says. He didn't begin to exist. He was manifested. Something that previously was unseen became seen, was shown to the world. It was brought to light. And we remember the words of John chapter 1, verse 1, don't we? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. This is our blessed Christ. The one who has existed from all time with the triune God. This is the one who was manifested to us. But it says that he was manifested not just as spirit. He wasn't projected onto uh, some screen there for the people to look at. He was manifested in a particular way. What does it say? He was manifested in the flesh. 
Do you remember how John, in his first epistle, you remember how he opened it, how he began? Let me invite you to turn over with me to 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, this is 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, what he is testifying to you is what I am talking to you about is not a phantom. I am talking to you, what I am going to explain to you is a life and blood man whose existence is from all time, and yet who now is incarnate so that we could, he could open his mouth and we could hear him. I could look at him with my eyes, not in a vision, not in a dream, but in my waking, with my waking eyes, I could see him, I could touch him. This is the Christ that we declare to you. He was manifested, not as a spirit, not as a dream, not as a vision, but as a real man with humanity like ours. The declaration of Scripture is that Christ took on flesh and He dwelt among us. This is the first super secret. The secret that we, we rejoice over this morning. What's the second super secret? He was vindicated by the Spirit. I think the first one that he was manifested in the flesh is, is pretty easy for us to understand, pretty easy for us to comprehend, isn't it? We know what it means that he was manifested in the flesh. What does it mean that he was vindicated by the Spirit? Do you remember what happened to Christ at his baptism? As he was coming up out of the waters, the heavens were opened. And the voice of the Father came forth saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we see a manifestation of the Spirit of God as a dove descending down upon Christ. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Literally, He was justified. Now, this is the idea of standing before a judge in a courtroom and the, the judge analyzing all of the evidence before him and rendering a verdict. And here, the verdict that he renders is, this was true. This is so. It is right. The Spirit's work in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was to prove that he himself was not just a man. He was a man filled with the divine nature. He was filled with the Spirit beyond measure, as we say. So the work of the Spirit was to vindicate or justify or prove true the reality that Jesus was the God-man. So as you read the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, what are you seeing a vindication of his person. Yes, it is telling you what Jesus did, how he came to bring peace and life and hope and comfort to people. And we see him humbling himself and feeding the poor. But all of these things are done to prove to you that he is who he says he is, the God man. The second super secret 
is that Christ was vindicated by the Spirit of God. The third super secret, look at it with me. He was seen by angels. Hopefully you're picking up on a theme as we go along here now. He was manifested in in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, he was made visible. He was vindicated by the Spirit. What does that mean? He was proved true. To whom? Well, to you and me. To everyone who might observe this. He was proved that what he was saying was true. The third one, he is seen by angels. Now, when was Jesus seen by angels? Well, we can think of at least four times, can't we? One we've sung about twice this morning at his birth. Remember there the angels came. The angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah and to Mary, declaring his birth. And then at his incarnation appearing in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, to the shepherds. And they beheld the glorious throne room of God as the birth of Christ was declared to them, saying, Behold, to you this day a Savior has been born. The angels appeared to Christ after his temptation in Mark 4.11. Do you remember what they did there? After his temptation, the angels came to Christ and they ministered to him. At his resurrection, in Luke 24, verses 1 to 7, the angels appeared and they were in the tomb. So that when the women came, they said, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? And then in a final place, in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, it was the angels who accompanied Christ into glory at his ascension. But notice what Paul is emphasizing here, not just that Christ was present, that the angels were present with Christ, not that they ministered to him, but that they were, uh, that he was seen by them. Why? Because this is the theme of the confession. That everything Jesus did was visible. It wasn't hidden. It was visible. Men saw him. He was vindicated by the Spirit. All of his works were visible. His ministry of the Word was vindicated in the works that he did in the fullness of the Spirit. He was seen by angels. But here's a a fourth super secret. He was proclaimed among the nations. Imagine if Jesus' earthly ministry was carried on in this way. That he descended from heaven having a fully formed human body like Adam did. Remember, when God made Adam, he was an adult. This moment he began to exist, he was an adult man. Jesus could have descended from heaven in that same way with an adult form. He could have descended into a home. He could have gathered some disciples there. He could have ministered the word to them. Died a quiet death on a lonely hill somewhere. Been buried, raised, and ascended up into heaven. Only revealing that to just a few people. But that's not how Christ carried on his ministry. He was proclaimed among the, uh, among the nations. Think for, with me just for a moment. I wonder how many different city names you could come up with just off the top of your head that Jesus visited in the gospel. There are at least two dozen. Let me give you just a few of them. 
In John chapter 1, there's a special one, isn't there? Cana. Jesus was there attending a wedding with his mother when he turned the water into wine. Bethsaida and Capernaum. After then, Jesus went to these cities and it was there that he called his disciples to himself. Capernaum was the headquarters of his Galilean ministry as he went all over the place. The Decapolis, this was the Gentile region where Christ went to minister and to cast out demons. Tyre and Sidon. Those decrepit cities that were accursed where Jesus visited and then on his way back visited a Samaritan woman by a well. We hear of names like Nain, Gethsemane, Jericho, and Bethany where Christ raised his beloved friend. City after city after city Not anonymous places, but places that are recounted. Jesus' public ministry took him many places so that he was declared amongst the nations. And this brings us to the fifth super secret. He was believed on in the world. He was believed on in the world. As we walk through the Gospels, they account for men of all walks of life coming to faith in Jesus. We think of Simeon, the priest, especially this time of year. We think of Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who came to Christ in the middle of the night in John chapter 3 to ask him, what what is all of this? Please explain it to me. I don't want any of my other Pharisee friends knowing about this. But tell me, explain to me, how how do we know these things? Tell me about the new birth. Explain it to me. We think about the Gadarene demoniac man who was cutting himself with stones and hiding amongst the tombs. We think about the Gentile woman who said, but Lord, even the dogs eat from the scraps that fall from the table. You see, as Christ is traveling in and amongst these many dozen cities, there are real people, real people who are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ So that we might understand many hundreds, if not thousands, of disciples had been formed by the time of His ascension. Jesus was believed on in the world. And then we look at the sixth super secret. He was taken up in glory. Surely, surely this is the secret part, right? Surely this is the part of Jesus' life that only a few people would have attended. Turn over with me to Acts Chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As Paul will go on, he talks about as many as 500 people at one time witnessing the risen Christ. And there they are, standing with him as he is taken up into glory until they cannot see him anymore. Last night we read from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15, which teaches us that in this moment Christ was received into glory. That He sat down at the right hand of the Father Almighty. This has become part of our confession, hasn't it? We confess that Jesus has ascended up into heaven. That He is ruling and will rule now and forever. All of this was done publicly. So then we come back to the beginning. If Christ is manifested in the flesh, if He was vindicated by the Spirit by all these people, before all these people, if He was seen by angels, if He was proclaimed among the nations, if He was believed on in the world, and received into glory, why would Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and indeed all the church, call godliness a great mystery? Well, I hope that you perceive a little bit of the irony of the whole statement. It isn't a mystery at all. It isn't a secret. The mystery of godliness is Christ. The mystery of godliness is Christ. The life that flows in the believer is the life of Christ. And everything that He did on the earth is to benefit His people. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, even now gives us a taste of the kingdom that is to come. Jesus' ministry was not secret. It was public. Proven to be true. But there's a reason why Paul calls it a mystery, and I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In Corinth, it, it probably was a pastime of sorts to go out of your home and to go into the city square and listen to different men debate philosophy on the steps of a temple. And you would go out of there sort of like we do today, identifying yourself with whichever philosopher you thought had brought the best arguments. And so they began to speak down about Paul. I mean, he's just a ruddy guy, and he's talking about this God-man who came to die. How silly and ridiculous is that? And here Paul says in chapter 2, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, 
or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. How is it secret? If you come preaching it, I don't understand. How, does it, how is it a secret to us? If all of these things are true, well, it's a secret in this way. Look with me at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we who have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You see, here is the mystery of godliness, and here is why it is a mystery, because it is only perceived by the Spirit of God and imparted to the people of God by the Spirit of God. These things are not comprehended by the natural man. Sin blinds our eyes to what is obvious and evident. Think about Psalm 19. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It's there. It is before you. Christ had a public ministry. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was proclaimed amongst the nations. Believed on in the world. No mystery to it. The only reason that you do not receive it is because of the hardness of your heart and the blindness of your eyes. Which hardness and which uh, blindness the Spirit overcomes. Godliness is not a mystery because God has done everything in secret. It is a mystery because sin has blinded our eyes to what is true. If you rejoice, therefore, this morning in the birth of Christ, let that rejoicing remind you that God has done something in your life. Because of His great mercy through Christ, He has sent His Spirit to you because He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life. And out of the abundance of His love and kindness and generosity, He has enabled you to see what is plainly visible. He has revealed His Christ to you by His Holy Spirit who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and received into glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, as we come before You to praise You this morning, we remember that our praise is not just because Jesus was born, because He carried on this earthly ministry, 
Because He was crucified, dead, buried, raised, and descended up into heaven. But the only reason we see the godliness in those statements is because of Your work in our hearts. Father, You have distinguished us from other men. You have enabled us to believe. And we praise You for that. Lord, as we gather now with our families, rejoicing over this Christmas day, remind us that that rejoicing comes from You. And we praise You for it in Jesus' name. Amen.